Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, in all the good that you shower upon us and in the busyness of our lives, we pray that you would give us grace to hear this serious word that speaks of eternity. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand what it said, our Father to believe it, and to act in conformity with its truth, uh, so that we would be ready for the day which you have prepared for all people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may have noticed uh, that people can have very strong and negative views about God. Happy to describe him as our imaginary friend or a kind of celestial psychological crutch as unreal and ineffective. Well, after a series of interactions with the prophet, uh, this is now the case with the people that Malachi has been addressing, people at least, who at least by descent claim to be the people of God. You have spoken arrogantly or harshly or strongly against me, says the Lord to them. The doubts about God's love and justice the people have expressed have now hardened into unbelief. And they're expressing that view with full conviction and confidence. Yet, addressed directly by the Lord, they respond dismissively. What have we said against you? It's as though God is so marginal in their thinking that they can't recall, can't bother to remember what they've said. Their response is contempt in line with their conclusions about God, that he has no bearing on real life for good or ill. They've been saying, it's futile, verse 14, to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Despite all that Malachi has said, despite these people hearing the word of God, this is now the conclusion of some, perhaps most of them. Serving God, worshipping God, is useless. There's no return, they say, from keeping his laws or from repenting, as his prophet has just called them to earlier in chapter 3. It's useless, they say, to mourn for sin, to respond to his word which has showed them their faults with contrition. He doesn't bless the righteous and he does not punish the wicked. The arrogant, those who are unconstrained in their activity by any consideration of what pleases or displeases God, those who live by their own standards and do whatever they want without bothering about what God has said. The arrogant, they're the blessed ones, the ones who should be admired and imitated. They, single-mindedly pursuing what pleases them, are the ones who prosper, who get what they want out of life. They even openly defy God, show no fear of God, and God does nothing. This is the settled conviction that people have come to and it expresses what many think today. Whether you believe in God or not makes no difference. In fact, in their view, believers are worse off, guilt-ridden, just held back by fear from doing what they really want. 
the happy ones are those who live by their own standards and pursue their own goals without bothering about God. Now this is short-term blinkered thinking, assessing the truthfulness of God's word <coughs> by the standard of their own limited observation, their own observation of whether it's helped them get on with life, profited them materially, as if there were no history of God dealing with his people in judgment and blessing. It's short-term thinking and it's actually devilish and idolatrous thinking. You see, despite their hearing the word of God, the people have come, like Eve who assessed the devil's temptation solely by her own appetites, the people have come to agree with the devil. Remember what the devil said? You will not die. God won't keep his word, whether of promise or judgment. He can't be trusted. Oh, but the creature can be trusted. Our judgment, our insight is greater than God's. Short-term and idolatrous thinking. Malachi's preaching has just hardened many of those who heard him because he's exposed their half-hearted religion as the idolatrous apostasy half-hearted religion always is. But are they right? I mean, in our own world, we see the ungodly prospering, don't we, at least for a time. I mean, three years ago, if you'd known him, you may have thought Harvey Weinstein was a heel, but you would have acknowledged him as successful. And we hear people openly defying God with no seeming consequence. In fact, we've kind of gotten used to it. We no longer recoil in horror and fear as people blaspheme God's name, express their contempt of the Christian God, do openly what they know he condemns. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and accept it. Are they right? What's God's response to this slander that you're better off having nothing to do with God, with not taking his requirements and commands seriously? And while people in church don't openly espouse this view, at least not often, this view does affect us. We start to think that faith is not about the real world and real world consequences and real world obedience, but just a private, personal thing about how you feel or what helps you cope. And that God is just the small God of our own small, private world. So what is God's response? Well, firstly, God makes it plain that he knows those who are his and will never forget them. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Just as the arrogant talked amongst themselves about God, so those who fear the Lord talk. And the Lord hears. A reminder, isn't it, that he knows what we really believe. He hears even the whispers of our hearts. And those who fear the Lord are those who believe what the Lord says. They honour his name. That is, they believe all that he has said about himself. They believe that he is the creator and judge, the great I am, the only God who in the words of scripture forms the light and creates darkness, who brings prosperity and creates disaster, who puts to death and brings to life 
the one who rules the real world. Those who fear him hear his warnings and tremble, hear his promises and rely on them wholly, knowing that the Lord will not let one of them fall or fail. They acknowledge that it's the Lord's right to command and that they should obey and that thanks and praise are his for our lives and all our good come from his hand. All those who fear the Lord are not those who have perfectly obeyed him always, but they are those who have heeded, in this case, Malachi's call to repent, to turn back to God, who believe God will be faithful to his name and show them mercy. And while the Lord never forgets, he also knows our frailty, and so he gives those who fear him here an assuring picture. Like Xerxes, recording Mordecai's service in his annals, in, his, in the record of his reign, the Lord says he will write a record, a scroll of remembrance. The names and the response to his word of those who fear the Lord will never be forgotten. And this record will be used to ensure that on the day God acts, they are distinguished from the wicked, distinguished so that that day will have an entirely different outcome for them. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you'll again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God says he has a day. Later in verse 5 he calls it that great and terrible day. Its timing is uncertain and unknown to us, but that day is sure. And on that day, the Lord will act to vindicate his name and his word, to give the lie to all the devil's lies by distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. On that day, those who fear him, he says, will be his and his treasured possession. That is, they will be dear to him and kept safe by him. And this phrase also identifies those who fear God by believing his word as the true Israel, whom God described way back at Mount Sinai as his treasured possession. You see, it's not physical descent alone. Never has been, even in the Old Testament, that makes one a member of the people of God. No, it's faith in his word. And God says he will spare them as his beloved children. On that day they'll be saved by grace, not on the basis of their own works, saved by faith in the promise of God that those who return to him, who repent at the preaching of his word, will be made fit for God to return to them. How he will do that, be true to both his law and his promise, awaits the coming of Jesus and his death for sin. But the Lord promises to those who fear him gracious pardon, a sparing from judgment, and it is the judgment of the last day of which he is speaking here. God makes clear that the distinction he will make then between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not, 
is complete and final, that this day ushers in an eternal separation. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. These are powerful images of the judgment that awaits those who persevere in rebellion against God, persevere in believing that God will not keep his word, and images of the good God intends for his people. All will see on that day, that the arrogant are not blessed, that there is no escape for those who put God to the test. And it will be plain that serving God, responding to his call to repent and trust him, is the way to life and blessedness. The arrogant and the evildoers, it said, will be consumed like stubble, a picture drawn from their agricultural practices. See, after the field was harvested, it would be left fallow with what remained of the uh, wheat uh, left in the field to dry out. And that remainder of wheat is, of course, called stubble. Then, before the next planting, the field will be cleared of last year's crop and weeds by burning the stubble. And so this is a picture that speaks of both a delay of time passing while the stubble dried out but also of the irresistibility of judgment, for the denied stubble was quickly consumed. Equally so, the wicked, those who defy God, are not judged immediately. No, God gives time while they are ready for judgment, but that will be a judgment they cannot resist. And then Malachi changes the image to emphasise how completely they'll be destroyed, not a root or branch left. Judgment is total and final. But for God's people, those who fear his name, who confess the Lord as the God he's revealed himself to be, that day will be one of blessing and healing. Righteousness will arise like the sun. It will shine forth on everything, bathe the land in its light. That day will be a day when the world is again rightly ordered in dependence on and obedience to its creator. And those who fear God's name will experience righteousness in its fullness, not just in the world around them, but in themselves. They will be right and right with God. And the establishment of God's righteousness in his creation will bring healing in its train. On that day, the effects of sin, disease, disaster and trouble will be gone. And God's people will experience the restoration of wholeness, physical and spiritual, however they might have been wounded in this world. And like calves released from their stalls, they'll be bursting with the joy of life. And the difference between outcomes for the arrogant and those who fear the Lord, for those who serve the Lord and those who claim that it's useless, is actually brought home and emphasised in verse 3 by combining the agricultural pictures of verse 1 and 2. Those delighted calves are released to play on the recently burned fields, the wicked ashes under their feet. You could not get a greater difference. 
Now, God could not make clearer, could he, that he has a day. He says it clearly. And he couldn't make clearer that on that day, the lies of those who reject his word will be seen to be empty. And he could not make clearer that on that day, on that day he acts, there will be the greatest difference imaginable between those who fear him, those who receive and believe his word as true, the word of the living God, and those who do not, who reckon the Lord can be ignored and dismissed. God's made it clear there is a day. Now, if you do not believe that, if you're sitting there thinking, no, no, I don't have to worry about that, then come and see me. And let me try and convince you that this is a word you should believe and respond to. That this is a word that comes to you as a merciful warning from God to turn you away from lies so that you can live. You see, this is too important a matter to be wrong on, isn't it? To go through life confidently thinking that you'll never have to give an account when actually it is exactly the opposite. One day you will meet the living, holy and just God. But if you do believe God has a day, how should you respond now to be ready for that day, to be amongst those who are God's, those whom he reckons to fear him and honour his name. Well, Malachi tells the people of his day how they can be ready and by thinking about how they can be ready, we can learn how we can be ready. Malachi says to the people of his day that they can be ready by remembering the law of Moses and listening to the prophet that the Lord will send. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave, I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. To those who fear God's name, Malachi says, remember. That's how you'll be ready for that day. If you live in the present, remembering the salvation God has accomplished in the past, you will be ready for that day. But remembering is not just recalling. Remembering the law of my servant Moses for them is remembering to do. And that's actually been the message of the book of Malachi, isn't it? Whether it's God speaking of right sacrifices or the role of the priests, the rejection of idolatry or faithfulness in marriage, the behaviour of the law forbids or the ties the law commanded, God has been saying to the people, remember the covenant. The law I commanded my servant Moses for you at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Remember that relationship I entered into with you when I saved you. And he's saying to them, relate to me on the terms I, the Lord, have established with you, not on your own terms, because that's what it is to fear the Lord, to relate to him on his terms. God's people of Malachi's day will continue to be ready for that day that was coming by abiding in that covenant, 
relating to God on the basis of the relationship he has established, not on the basis of their own ideas and standards. And as God's covenant people, part of remembering was actually responding faithfully to the prophets the Lord sent with his message for his people. In particular, responding to the prophet God would send to his people before the great day, the prophet Elijah. You see, God is gracious. Just as in chapter 3, he said he would send a messenger before he himself came with his refining, purifying judgment, so here he promises to send someone, Elijah, to help them get ready for that great and terrible day. But why call that prophet to come Elijah? I mean, Elijah was a prophet who'd lived and prophesied about 450 years before Malachi. And you can read about him in 1 Kings. Well, there are a couple of things that made Elijah suitable as the one to come. He, he was, in his lifetime, in his ministry, characterised by zeal for the covenant. And at a time of national apostasy, he had challenged the people to turn back from their idolatry to the Lord. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Oh, and also, Elijah had not died. He was taken up into heaven. And so he was a prophet who could return. And the task entrusted to this Elijah to come of restoring God's people to right relationship with the Lord, to observing the covenant, was actually the work the Elijah of the past was known for. Uh, this word is, is spoken of in Malachi in terms of reconciling divided families, of turning the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents. And that's because... The family, more than anything else, had been entrusted with the transmission and observance of the covenant by God. Parents were to teach God's commands and children were to honour and obey their parents' teaching. And so the covenant relationship would actually be transmitted and be practised in Israel. It's to restore this engagement by all the people with the covenant that Elijah comes. And God's people needed to hear the prophet when he came for the alternative of continuing in unbelief, trusting themselves, not God, was dreadful. The land and the people would be subject, it says, to total destruction. And that's a word that was used of the judgment visited upon the peoples of Canaan when the people of Israel conquered the land. And it's also a word that was used of the judgment to be inflicted on those communities amongst Israel that turned away from the Lord and succumbed to idolatry. Total destruction. The people whom Malachi was first addressing would be reckoned amongst those who feared God and honoured his name, would be ready for the day to come by living in accordance with the relationship God had established with them when he saved them and by listening to the prophet he would send to prepare them for that day, to recall them to that covenant. But what about us? How can we be ready? Well, the New Testament teaches us that the Elijah to come has already come. 
That's the way our Lord Jesus teaches us to think of the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who went before him to prepare his way, to prepare the people of Israel for his coming. And seeing this tells us how we today can be ready for that great day which is still to come. You see, before his birth, Luke chapter 1, John was declared by the angel to be the one, verse 17, who would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John's ministry, we're told, would be the ministry of Elijah spoken of in Malachi. And throughout his ministry, John wore the distinctive dress that Elijah, the historical Elijah, had worn. And speaking to the crowds of John, John 11 uh, Jesus had said, what did you go out to see? A prophet. He then goes on to speak of John's greatness. And then verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. And as you've heard, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, where, the, where Peter, James and John had witnessed Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus, Jesus again spoke of John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come and had come. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. And it says the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And this is true. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come, even though in John's Gospel at the beginning he actually denies that he is Elijah. That's not a denial of the identification of his ministry with the ministry of Elijah. It's actually a denial that he is the physical Elijah who worked on earth in the time of Ahab all those hundreds of years ago and a denial that he would fulfil the expectation that some first century Jews had of Elijah as almost another Messiah. John the Baptist, says our Lord, is the messenger who goes before the Lord to prepare his way. And he is the Elijah who was to come, whose ministry was to get the people of Israel ready for the coming of that great and terrible day when God would come in judgment. What does that mean for us and how we can be ready for that day? Well, it means we need to receive John's ministry as the ministry of that Elijah to come and realise that recognising him as the Elijah to come makes that day more certain and our need to be ready for it more urgent. You see, John's testimony identified Jesus as the one who will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, who will exercise God's judgment on that great day. Verse 11, he, that is the one to come, Jesus, will baptise you, says John, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus will bring that division. He will separate the godly from the ungodly. 
And John's testimony about Jesus has been vindicated in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been exalted as the one who has authority over all, the one who will judge the living and the dead. He will fulfil what John has said of him. John spoke the truth of Jesus. And John's ministry makes that day more certain because his ministry is the partial fulfilment of the prophecy of Malachi that makes the fulfilment of the whole certain. You, you could see the fulfilment of, of, of that prophecy in John the Baptist being the Elijah to come as, in a sense, the first instalment of all that God's promised in, in Malachi, that John being the Elijah to come is the down payment on the fulfilment of all that God promises in Malachi. Further, the gospel of Jesus vindicates Malachi's message. You see, the gospel shows us Jesus as the one who feared God, who always served God as the righteous one. And then the gospel shows beyond doubt that even if short-term appearances may deny that God is faithful to his word, well, even if short-term appearances may deny it, the reality is God is faithful to his word and he vindicates the righteous. That's true, isn't it? I mean, on the Friday and Saturday of that first Easter, you might have believed that the arrogant prosper and that those who defy God will get away with it. But you couldn't believe that on the Sunday morning with the empty tomb. And you couldn't believe it on the Sunday evening as Jesus stood amongst his followers, risen, never to die again. Oh, you couldn't believe it on the day when Jesus pours out his spirit, God's spirit, on his followers. And you couldn't believe that God is indifferent to the righteous on the day Jerusalem was destroyed, as Jesus said. We know Jesus is the judge. And if in his mercy God has delayed that judgment so that all can hear, so he can be saviour of the world, that day is still certain and our need to get ready is more urgent for Elijah has come and there is no other forerunner, no one else to come. But if our need to be ready is more urgent, how can we be ready? How can we be confident that on that day we will be amongst the Lord's own people, his treasured possession? Well, we start by heeding the prophet. John still speaks. His testimony to Jesus is recorded at the beginning of all the Gospels. It is that important. We should listen to John and recognise Jesus as the one. He says he is the one who will bring God's judgement. And we should listen to John and turn back to God for the forgiveness that John promises to those who repent. And like the people of Malachi's day, we should fear God by remembering. You see, we too live in the present ready for the future day by remembering the salvation God has achieved for his people in the past. But we do not look back to Sinai. We look back to the beginning of the new covenant, and the death, the saving death of our Lord Jesus on the cross, the death he calls us always to remember. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. We are to remember 
that God has saved us through the death of his son, that our sins are forgiven and remembered no more because Jesus bore our sins in his death on the cross. We have to remember that we are now God's treasured possession by faith in Jesus, who gave himself for that purpose, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, are his treasured possession, eager to do what is good. Oh, and to remember is also to remember that in calling us to believe the gospel, Jesus has also called us to be his disciples, to follow him now, to be his disciples who obey all that he has taught us. You see, again, remembering is no mere recollection. It is remembering to do, to live trusting in what Jesus has done, not our own works, to live giving yourself to a life of love and doing good, no matter how costly, to live expectantly, knowing that his death and rising make that day and Jesus' return in glory certain. So, as you go through this life, as you experience as a follower of Jesus difficulty and hardship and followers of Jesus experience difficulty and hardship, and as you see those who do not confess Jesus as Lord prospering, and as you hear people mocking him and mocking his father, and you see those who do so receiving rewards and accolades and advancements, well, as you experience those things, you might be tempted to believe the devil's lie. You might be tempted to believe there's no difference, no reward for righteousness, no punishment for the wicked. You might be tempted to think that those who don't think about God are better off, their life is easier. You might be tempted to think, as the devil would have you think, that God won't keep his word and we don't need to fear him. When that happens, hear Malachi. Hear God's word to you in Malachi. Know that there is a day when God will make the distinction between those who serve him and those who don't absolutely clear. And know that day is certain. Elijah has come. Jesus has been raised to reign. And remember the covenant God has called you into through trusting his son. Remember to live as his followers, those who now have God's law written on their hearts. Remember more. Pray for those whom you might be tempted to envy or whose lies might provoke you to anger. Pray for them because you were once also blinded by the devil's lies and only the mercy of God has opened your eyes to see God's glory in Christ. Pray for them because you were once deaf to God's word and it's only his mercy that's opened your ears to hear his call to turn back to him. Pray for them because you were once apathetic in the face of God's judgment and it's only his mercy that has convicted you of your sin, convicted you that your rebellion is foolish and judgment is certain. Pray, and even if they mock, let them know, let your neighbours know that there is a day, that great and terrible day, 
when, as Peter says, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Remember, pray and speak. For that day is certain Elijah has come. Jesus is the one who will judge the world and only Jesus can spare us in that judgment. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that we find it hard to think of serious things, hard to think of eternity. Our lives are full of busyness and plenty. And we live in the fog of preoccupation with the present. But we pray, let your word cut through that fog. Let it sink deep into our hearts. Let us know beyond doubt that there is that day that you have fixed. And on that day you will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve you and those who ignore and defy you. And we pray in your mercy, help us to be ready for that day by remembering your salvation in Jesus, remembering to live as his people, and give us grace, even in the face of their unbelief and mocking, to speak to others of that day, we pray. Help us to be people who love enough to tell the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.